Thank you very much. Uh, I do uh, think this is an excellent leaflet, I have to say that, but I'd be grateful if you'd now put it away, uh, rather than read it while I'm speaking. And the main reason for that is, it will say a lot of the things that I'm going to say this morning, but in a slightly different order, and you'll probably get a little bit confused, and you'll be distracted uh, if you try and read that and listen to me at the same time. Uh, so if you put that away and read it later, and it will act as a, a help to your memory um, as you uh, think about this series that we've, we're starting today, which is going to last for the next two or three months. And so it's all about the gift of life. And straight away there, we have, if you like, the launch point, that life, God wants to give us life as a gift he doesn't want us to have to work hard for the life that we enjoy with him. He doesn't want it to be hard labor. He doesn't want to put rules of religion onto us or even rules of commandments and obligations onto us. He wants to give us a gift that allows his life to come inside of us and to work out from inside. So what he does is not to impose rules on us like the Ten Commandments or even the teaching of Jesus. What he wants to do is to inject something into us as a gift that will start to work out the life of God so that we can live as Jesus wants us to live, enjoy life in this world. And when God made the world, he really made it so that we could enjoy life in this world. He didn't want to make it hard work, although there is hard work, putting one brick on another, etc., etc. But he does want to make it exciting and fun and good for us and enjoyable and all the rest of it. And that's what God wants for 2014. So this is a great starting point, how God comes to give us life, and it's a gift of life. Now, one of the things I want to say as we go through this morning, this, this morning uh, I am going to challenge you a little bit to come on a journey with me and think quite hard. I'm not going to apologize to you for that because, uh, you know, it does seem to me that we rather like entertainment in our world. Well, I quite like entertainment myself. Uh, and uh, just recently, Lorraine and I went to The Hobbit, for instance, thoroughly enjoyed it. We like entertainment, but, but also we do need to think about things. And we do need to think about the salvation that God has given to us and the life that God has given to us and how we can live that. And so uh, because we're focusing on how this gift of life has come to us, which has come to us as a gift from Jesus, but because he died on the cross, we are going to be looking at what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Well, that is so big and so vast that I can't trivialize it. I can't say, well, it's just like this, or it's just like this. In two minutes, you've got it, because it doesn't work like that. So I'm going to work you a little bit hard. So it won't be heavy, it will be fun, it will be good, but I'm not apologizing for it. And this is the launch pad for everything else that you're going to be hearing over the next few months. It's about where our freedom comes from and how we can offer freedom to others. And our title for today, um, given to me by Steve, is Hard Won Freedom. I have to say that um, 
I'm a last minuter. I confess to it, but I couldn't possibly accuse Steve of being last minute in giving me this title because we were traveling in India together at the end of November, and he says to me, I'm working on the series for the beginning of next year. How about you starting with this title, Hard Won Freedom? So I've had since the end of November to think about this, and I'm glad because actually it's, you know, we have received everything freely from God as a gift, salvation, life, forgiveness, hope, joy, etc. We receive all that freely as a gift from God, but it costs Jesus everything. It costs Jesus his life. So it comes to us freely, but someone else has paid for it. And so that's what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about this gift that comes to us, but at the cost of someone else. Now, when I started thinking about uh, freedom, uh, I couldn't help but think, I have to say, of Nelson Mandela. And a film that I'm looking forward to seeing very much, very soon is the film about Nelson Mandela and The Long Road to Freedom. Has anybody seen it already? Yes? Okay. Well, well done. There are some people who are right up uh, current with everything that's going on. Uh, I'm hoping to see it soon because uh, Mandela was a giant of a man, wasn't he? And some of us uh, probably watched his funeral service and the thanksgiving that was given uh, for him in South Africa a few weeks ago. And it was very, very moving indeed. And I think we are all sort of impacted by the fact that here was a man who uh, fought for justice for his nation. He fought for freedom for black people, but he didn't want black people to dominate the scene any more than he wanted white people to dominate the scene. He wanted a partnership between them both. He fought for care for the poor. He fought for education for children within his nation. Some of you may not know that when he became president, he had a, uh, you know, quite a comfortable salary. So he pledged to give one third of it away. And he gave one third of it away every year to establish a foundation for the education of children in his own country. Because education, of course, is a significant step for freedom uh, of children across the world. And, and so he put his money where his mouth was, where his heart was, where his convictions are. And the testimonies that were given at that Thanksgiving for Mandela were extremely moving. And I have to say, I thought President Obama's was absolutely masterful. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you know, go onto the web, have a look at it. But Obama's testimony to Mandela was absolutely powerful. But here was a man who by paying a price himself, by spending 27 years in prison himself, very much to his own cost, opened the door for freedom for many of his fellow human beings and, what's more, influenced the world. When he spoke about the power of forgiveness... Uh, You know, that has moved people across nations. There is no question about it. Now, there's still lots of things that need to be sorted out in South Africa. That is by no means a perfect nation, but it's not my, my purpose here to give a political rant. But you think of a man who laid down his own life to a large extent for freedom for a nation. This freedom that people now enjoy in South Africa 
cost this man a huge amount of personal suffering and conflict and, and injustice and all the rest of it in order to see this situation changed. But he still wasn't a saint, of course, as he confessed himself. And when I thought about that, you couldn't help but think, well, now, Mandela was a giant of a man, but Jesus was a colossus. <laughs> I mean, by comparison, what Jesus did was absolutely huge. He was also looking for freedom, but not just for a nation, but for nations. He was looking for people to come out of a slavery and bondage, which he saw that they lived in spiritually. We'll come back to that in a moment. In order to find freedom in the love of God and to be be projected out of this horrible slavery that they were in from nation to nation to nation across the world and to find life in him, to find a sense of justice and goodness, care for the poor. Uh, And, of course, he was willing to die to pay for that price, willing to die to reconcile God with man. So you think of man, don't you think, there's a huge man. When I think of what Jesus has done, this is absolutely massive, beyond all understanding. You and I probably cannot ever understand the fullness of what it cost him to lay aside his divine status and to come and live here as a man and to pay the price to reconcile us with God. This is massive, and that's what we're looking at today. So this hard-won freedom is a very, very powerful phrase. I want to start in Romans chapter 5. If we can just read six verses from Romans chapter 5. The trouble is, when you start to think about this theme, you can find... Verses from every book in the New Testament, without doubt, and from lots in the Old Testament, too. And and my challenge was, what do I read and what do I leave out? And more importantly, what do I leave out? Because, you know, it is a massive challenge. But Romans chapter 5 perhaps sums something up, and I want to start right here in the Bible. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, when we couldn't help ourselves. We've sung a number of songs this morning. I'm very grateful to Jeremy and the band for their uh, leading of us today because somehow this has opened up, you know, we couldn't save ourselves. Only you can save us. Only you can rescue us. And when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely... Will someone die for a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that means the very worst (laughs) type of people, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more 
Will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled to him, through, sorry, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well now, if we're going to talk about the freedom that Christ won through this coming, walking the earth and dying for us on the cross, we need to sort of say, well, if, he's, if this freedom has come to us, what did we need freeing from? How are we not free? Why did we need Jesus to come? Why did he have to come? Why did he do what he did? Because it was the only way that freedom could come to us. Well, now, we need to go back, obviously, into the Old Testament to think about this question. How are we not free? And the Bible lays out the problem. Genesis chapter 3 tells us right at the beginning of the book that there is a fundamental flaw and a fundamental problem that actually the rest of the Bible is going to be about fixing. So the first chapter of the book, if I can put it this way, is Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 3. It's all about how God made the world, how God made men and women to enjoy the good earth that he had made and how we loused it up all by ourselves. Uh, you know, by actually not following the maker's instructions. And so there is a fundamental flaw in God's people. That is that we were made to live in fellowship with God, but we consistently do our own thing. And Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve is a picture of us. Okay, when we talk about Adam and Eve, you can't just sort of, you know, point back and say, if only they hadn't done that stupid thing, I'd be all right. Adam and Eve is like a portrayal of the way we all act one way or another. And I hope when I've outlined that, you'll say, yes, that's me too. But it's a portrayal of how we all act one way or another, which is that we're made to live in fellowship with God. And there's a you know, beautiful passages in those first two or three chapters where it says that God comes down and, and uh, into the garden where Adam and Eve are living in order to have fellowship with them. And he walks with them in the cool of the day. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a beautiful picture that speaks of the delightful fellowship that we were made to have with God but for one reason or another, we decide to do it our own way. We decide, actually, we don't want to live that way as, as people who are subject to God. We want to live another way that is by our own self-will and our own independence. And so we leave God out. Now, that is essentially pride. If you leave God out of your life, you're basically saying, I think I can do this myself. 
And that's what the heart of prayer is all about, isn't it? Prayer is saying, I know I can't do this. (laughs) So please, Lord, would you come and do something? Would you come and change something? I can't change my own heart. I can't change my own desires. I can't, you know, summon up the energy or the will or whatever it may be. There is so much that I can't do. (laughs) I have prayed this week, like I've not prayed a long time, over preaching a message. Because it seems to me that if God the Holy Spirit doesn't show us what today is all about, the next three months isn't going to really be worth a lot. (laughs) Because everything is rooted in this whole story of the fundamental human problem and how Jesus came to fix that. And so here is the problem. The problem is that we leave God out, we this proud spirit that arises in us where which then makes us self-centered it's got to if you leave out the maker of the universe then then how do you live in this world well you live in a self-centered way because you're not living in a god-centered way there are only two choices by the way i did love ruth's prayer this morning and i do just want to underline it we've got all our eggs in your basket lord is what she prayed and uh, I thought, hey, isn't that good? And you know how you have these sort of mischievous thoughts as other people pray and reflect and all the rest of it? This is, this is what makes church interesting, it always seems to me, is that you know, there are all sorts of different thought patterns going on as we reflect in different ways. And I thought, is there another basket that we could put our eggs in? Well, there is the basket of self-dependence. There is the basket of independence, of doing it our way. Or will that not just end up with scrambled eggs on the floor? There's only one safe basket, that's for sure. And what we do is we throw away the basket of living with God and walking with God. And now what are we left with? Well, we're left with self-centeredness, which quickly becomes selfishness because... We have to focus on something, that's who we are as people. It leads to an independence, which ultimately leads to separation from God. Now this story is all told in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not turning there to read through every verse, but that's what the story is about. And that separation from God fundamentally means that we engage in sin. And I'm going to talk a little bit about sin. But this is the journey from walking with God to leaving out. It's a journey that we all go on one way or another. Most of us don't like anybody else telling us what to do. My father was a self-made businessman. He was, wasn't a big business, it was a small business, but uh, you know, he had about... 20, 25 people who worked for him. Um, But his sort of life message was, you've got to do it for yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. It drilled into me something of that human pride. He wasn't a Christian until almost at the end of his life. I remember the huge rows at home over when my mother became a Christian. It It was a lively, sparky relationship that they had. And uh, I remember the rows around the table and, and all the rest of it. But, but fundamentally, he was a self-made man who wanted to stand on his own two feet. That was the way he was going to live. And there is something of that in a good many of us. And 
I recognize that on the one hand, when I, while I gave my life to Christ when I was quite young, there was a root of self-made man in me, of human pride that wanted to do things my way. And this is part of the battle that we face. Are we going to draw God in and live his way, or are we going to do our own thing and live our way? So here is the fundamental flaw of the problem. It's outlined at the beginning of the book, and the rest of the book is an attempt to try and draw people back into relationship with God one way or another, through God revealing what he's like, showing what he's like, through the history of his people, or through his law, through his word, through his prophetic word, when he talks about things that he's going to do. But this is the fundamental problem. This means that sin, from this point of time, has become a universal problem. So as soon as Adam and Eve walked away from God, they walked into trouble between themselves. From now on, there was strife in their marriage. And in the next chapter we are told that there was strife between their sons, Cain and Abel. So much so that Cain obviously murdered Abel. You know that story. Uh, And eventually, and it didn't take long for this to happen, this is what is said in Genesis chapter 6. That's not long into the story, is it? And it says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. In other words, there was a small journey for Adam and Eve that took them away from God. They decided to live on their own and not close to God. But there was a massive fall that happened for the whole of the human race subsequent to that. It started to unravel fast. The wheels came off quickly of the human race subsequent to what seemed to be this small decision that Adam and Eve had taken which was not to walk with God in the garden that he had given to them. It now becomes a universal problem. What's more, this universal problem, in other words, something that afflicts everybody, starts to afflict every family and the whole of the human story, is remarkably pervasive. In other words, that is, it sort of gets deep into your guts and you don't even realize how deep it gets. Now, we have a few words for sin, wickedness, transgression, etc. Let me tell you, Hebrew has 13 words for sin. Now, that might seem a little bit over the top to you. I mean, do, do, do we really need that many words for sin? But what it pervades to us, what it conveys to us, is that there are several aspects to this problem that we are now living in. Greek has five words for sin, most of which you will recognize. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you the Greek words because uh, don't, we don't need. But it's, Greek has five words that speak, first of all, of missing the mark, 
transgression or overstepping our limits, lawlessness or violation, injustice and lack of compassion. And finally, the final word is a word that means degeneracy. This person is thoroughly rotten. You have these five words in Greek, all of them come out in the New Testament, and all of them are words that uh, are the cross of Jesus came to deal with. Now, I say that because the Bible sees this sin problem that starts from what looks like a small decision made up here. I think I'll do it my way. That wonderful song, I Did It My Way, just sums up everything about the human condition. But that small decision, I think I do it, I'll do it my way, leads to a huge, universal, and pervasive problem, which is, as it said in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. There's no difference. Jews who look religious, they have. You know, Gentiles, non-Jews who perhaps don't know that much, but they have, everybody has, sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, this, of course, assumes a certain number of things, and perhaps I want to try and outline this if I can. First of all, it assumes that there is a standard. Now, when I talk in this sort of way, this militates against the culture of our world which tries to be nicer and nicer, more and more inclusive, less judgmental. And in some of that, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> some of us need to be less judgmental you know, than we might instinctively be about other people. God is about the only one who somehow can keep the clear-sightedness of having a heart of compassion for all people, even sinners, while saying, this is black and this is white. This is true and this is false. And the rest of us have this problem that either we're woolly about sin, and so we try and include everyone and say, well, God loves everybody, doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Or we say, oh no, there's right and wrong and they're out of it. And so, so you know, we have a problem in ourselves, in keeping the same part of Christ. Um, Steve, in this leaflet that he put inside our news sheet today, uh, highlights two books. I confess I've only read one of them, um, but I, I haven't read the other. But John Stott's book on the cross of Christ is an absolute classic. It was written about, I know, 25 years ago, something like that. Um, and, but he quotes a sort of study done by a psychiatrist which was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And this psychiatrist basically says that part of the psychiatric problems we face now is that people don't recognize that there's something fundamentally wrong with them and with the way that they act which leads them into trouble. And you can't just blame everybody else. You have to take responsibility for yourself and for your own lives and for your own behavior. Now, the way I'm putting it now, I'm aware it's slightly simplistic. But it's not my essay. It's this guy, Carl Menninger, who wrote the essay. 
And so he says, here's the problem. He says, many former sins have now become crimes. Responsibility passes from church to state. And so the church is far less clear now on what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false than it used to be. I am trying to provoke you a little bit this morning because this view of sin and sinfulness will fundamentally affect, number one, how grateful you are for the salvation that you have received, and number two, how desperately, desperately you want to speak out the gospel to others. Because you will understand it's the only key that will set people free. If Jesus Christ only really needed to stick a sticking plaster on the human race... He wouldn't have come and walked through everything he walked through, and particularly died on the cross at the end, when he said, this is the cup that I must carry in order to fulfill the Father's will. He would have done something much easier. Let me show you how to live. If it was just a question of being shown how to live, he could have done that without dying at the end. But he showed us that it was a much deeper problem. So this assumes that there's a standard... The next thing that Carl Menninger says is that many sins have become sicknesses. So punishment is replaced by treatment. What you need is to recognize where this comes from. This comes from bad parenting. This comes from poor society. This comes from the DNA that you have now. And, and, you know, almost like every month it seems that you're reading, well, maybe there's a gene you know, wouldn't we all know it? You know, an overweight gene. You know, so I can blame it all on, you know, my genes instead of my appetites. And the real fundamental problem of why I'm a couple of stone overlay, o- overweight is I eat too much. Do you understand? Right. I mean, this is. So I'd love to play. I really like to. It's all right for you, thin people. <laughs> You don't understand it quite like I do. And maybe there is some metabolic differences between us. But given my metabolic makeup, I ought to eat less. Okay, but I don't like that. And I especially don't like sitting alongside you thin people who have a different metabolism and who can eat anything. I find that deeply, deeply frustrating. And I want to blame it on my genes. But I need to blame it on everything that I take in through here. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there is an element of human responsibility here. And we're all the time trying to blame others. Is there a homosexual gene or is there a choice that is made? I'll leave that question dangling. You answer that. But you understand... You understand over all sorts of issues, one of the things that we're trying to escape from is the deeply pervasive problem of sin. Sin in the human race that we prefer not to walk with God, we prefer to live independently, that we prefer not to take responsibility, but constantly to excuse ourselves. And maybe... Freedom comes when we take some responsibility. So Carl Menninger says, we need to understand, and I've just quoted one little bit of a sentence that he quotes here, that sin is implicitly aggressive. 
It's a ruthless hurting, a breaking away from God and the rest of humanity. Because once you've left God and his standard of love, compassion, justice and fairness out, you can make any other rule your rule of life. But if we've got God setting the standard for how we walk and live in love and compassion and justice and fairness, then we're going to have to stick by his standard. The problem is we don't want to, we don't like it, we don't like God setting the rules for us, we don't like God saying what should happen in the world that he made. And that's the root of problem. How are we not free? This is to a large part, how we're not free if we'll understand it. At least, that's the Bible's answer. (coughs) Try and find another one if you want, but that's the Bible's answer, and that's what's behind the work on the cross, Christ's work. So how does Jesus set us free? Well, basically, Jesus sets us free, first of all, by showing us there's another way to live. We can live with God at the center. If anybody put all his eggs in the God basket, it was Jesus. And Jesus loved to do his work, and then when he'd finished doing his work, he loved to live in his presence, go into his presence, pray, etc. So Jesus put his eggs in the God basket. So he comes and he shows us there's another way to live, and that's part of our seeing how he lives in the presence of God and in the power of God and in the life of the kingdom of God and in wanting to see God's kingdom come all around him in living missionally to get the love of God out there that's how Jesus lives but as the New Testament goes on it's clear that this freedom comes to us fundamentally finally through the cross He demonstrates there's another way to live and then he shows, and I'm going to open up to you the kingdom of heaven so you can live differently. And this is how it comes through the cross. And every book of the New Testament, and I I really wish I could sort of grab more and more out of this, but every book of the New Testament talks about the cross as being the center of this thing. Mark's Gospel starts... The good news of God. Jesus came declaring the good news of God. Chapter 8, big debate. Who's Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And he shows them that he is the Messiah. They've, They've seen something. At the foot of the cross, in Mark's Gospel, you have the Roman centurion who stands there and says, This man was a son of God. In other words, if you want to understand who God is, good news comes, all sorts of signs, wonders, da-di-da, revelation to the disciples. But if you really want to see who God is and who the Son of God is and where the Son of God is made known, it's at the foot of the cross. Because even then, there, Gentile people, non-Christian people see God revealed. It's a powerful, and Mark's gospel is written like that, so that we see this unfolding revelation. Now we sit, now at the cross, we really see it. 
In the Acts of the Apostles, every time they preach the gospel, well, almost every time. There is one profound exception in Acts chapter 17. Almost every other time, the cross is at the center of their proclamation. In John's gospel, it's about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Paul's letter to the Romans, it's all about what happened on the cross. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, likewise. All the way through the New Testament, you've got this good news focusing on the cross. So what's happening at the cross? Well, I'd like to just try and highlight this as best I can. At the cross, there are three big pictures that I want us to see. First of all, there's a legal transaction going on. Jesus voluntarily takes responsibility for our sin and dies our death. One of the things I quite enjoy doing is inviting somebody out you know, to meet for lunch and then you know, the bill comes, and I snaffle it, and I pay the bill. Uh, why? Well, I just like blessing people, I suppose. Even if we've been talking about difficult, I'd like some blessing in there. I paid the bill. They go away thinking he's not a bad guy. I don't want that. That's not why I do it. <laughs> but they go away blessed. They go away free. They were wondering how they were going to afford this lunch. And I pay the bill, and it's done for them. This is what's happening on the cross. It's a legal transaction. Jesus has paid a bill. He's taken responsibility for our sins himself, voluntarily. He says, I'll pay the bill. I, I know this is ever such a simple picture, but he's just saying, I'll pay the bill. You messed up, I'll pay the bill. You were driving the car when drove into somebody else, I'll fix it. This is a legal, now it's much bigger than that, of course, and I'll come to that in a moment, it's much bigger than that, but there's a legal transaction going on here where Jesus takes responsibility for our sin and dies our death. Richard's trying to move me on here. There's a relational, there's a relational thing going on. So there's a transaction, a legal transaction, Jesus is paying the bill. There's a bill that you've run up through your stupidity, through your selfishness, through your sinfulness. You've got a huge mountain of debt raised against you. Jesus is paying the bill. Hallelujah. You can say hallelujah. Because you're free. You don't have to pay the bill. Cost him everything. Cost him everything. But you're free. It's a legal transaction. Second, there's a relational reconciliation. This isn't just a legal transaction. It's more than that. It's a Father breaking in through the Son to say, I'm going to tear these barriers down that separate you from God. And I'm going to open up. That's that's why the curtain in the temple gets torn in two at the moment when Jesus dies. And it was torn from top to bottom to indicate it was God who did it. This wasn't a human action trying to open up access to God. This was God opening up access to him for you and for me. And all we have to do is walk into the most holy place where ordinary people could never go in. Only priests, only holy people. Now you can walk in because you're holy because of the death of Christ. There's a relational reconciliation going on. Jesus tears down every barrier between God and us. And finally, there is a fundamental exchange which is that he takes the curse for us. The curse 
that comes to us because of our sin, the curse of death, by the way, the death was not part of God's original creative plan. The Bible is very clear about that, that God intends us for eternal life. But death was a penal event. In other words, it was a penalty for this sin that we commit in stepping away from a relationship with God. And God says, I can't allow people who've stepped away from walking with me to live forever. And so death is a penalty. You and I were not going to die. That's why Jesus comes and by the power of his death pays the price of our death, dies in our place when we were due to die so that we can now receive the life that comes through the resurrection power of Jesus working within us and we can live forever. Amen? Amen. So the death penalty has been rescinded, totally removed by the death of Jesus Christ because he's carried it for us. And this is a fundamental exchange that he takes our curse, he takes our penalty so that we can receive his blessing. Please say hallelujah or something like that. Say, isn't this good? Because this is good news, all that Jesus has done for us and he's brought us into incredible freedom. Okay, now let me try and unwrap this. What you find as you start looking at the cross and you take a layer off, and you take another layer off and take another layer off, this is really good. And then there's layer after layer after layer. And actually, Steve refers to some of that in that very good leaflet in your news sheet. Please do read it later. But let me try and take the layers off a little bit about how Jesus sets us free. It's a complete freedom. And, and the Bible gives us several different pictures. Because one picture won't do. And what Christians have tried to do over the years is say, it's like this. Well, it's like this, but it's like this as well. It's like this as well. It's like this as well. There are several pictures in the Bible for how this works. So the first picture is the picture of sacrifice in the temple. Now, if you understand anything about the Old Testament and temple and sacrifices and all the rest of it, it was this, that because of our sin, God is so holy, we can't enter the presence of God as we are. And there is a profound truth in that for every single one of us. If you go to an Anglican church, most services you start with what is called the general confession. The general confession basically says, sorry God, we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed, with things we've done and with things we've not done. And some of the Older forms of the prayer say, and there is no health in us. And some of you who have Anglican roots will remember. Uh, Arlene's nodding. She was the daughter of a vicar. She remembers it well. So, that's true. And the temple was a way of saying, somebody's got to pay, animals pay, blood has to be spilled. We can't walk our way into the presence of God as we are. We need God to do something. We need blood to be shed. And so there's a picture of the temple that says the wrath of God is turned away. That's Theologians call that the atonement. It's one aspect of what's going on. There's a second picture. 
It's like slaves in the marketplace. Now, we don't really understand this. We can imagine a little bit of it from uh, you know, films like Amazing Grace and Wilberforce and all the rest. We don't really understand the fundamental aspect of this, but in Roman society, slavery was a big deal. And if you got into financial trouble, it also happened in the Jewish society, but I don't want to go there. Um, but you, know, you could become somebody's slave to pay your debts. It's actually a very powerful picture of sin that enslaves us, but we'll come back to that again in a moment. But somebody can come along and buy you out of slavery. A family member can come along and buy you out of slavery. Or a wealthy person can come along and buy you out of slavery and make you part of their family. And they adopt you and give you a family name. That happened a lot in Roman society. So... What's going on at the cross? Well, sin's being paid for, the wrath of God's being averted, but also you're being bought out of the things that enslaved you into a life of freedom. Jesus said in John chapter 8, whoever sins is a slave of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's a freedom for God's people. We don't have to live this life of sin constantly being a cycle we can't break out of. Come to that again in a moment. Third picture is the, the picture of the courtroom. We are like criminals in a dock, but God declares us, because of the death of Jesus, not guilty on the basis of Jesus dying in our place. This is a verdict which is declared now, which stands good for eternity. You don't have to wait, I don't have to wait, before we stand, until we stand before the great judgment seat of Christ and hope for the best. Hallelujah. God declares us not guilty now and forever, and it's a verdict that has been passed because of the blood of Jesus. Fourth picture. Fourth picture is one of family. It's like a family that's been divided relationally. We're offered reconciliation with the Father and his love pouring out into our lives. All of the previous actions needed to happen because of this one. If there is a root that underlies our salvation, it's about this one, that God's a father. And he loves the human beings that he's made like a father. They're his children. Many of you will know that Lorraine and I have five children. They range from the ages of 38 down to 22. Uh, I've discovered a truth about them, or through them, through them. Uh, that gets more profound as life goes on. When they're little, living in your house, you can impose certain types of behavior with rewards and incentives and penalties. And you get a conformity. When they walk out into the wide world, you are powerless. And you pray a lot more than you ever did for them before. There is no question about that. 
And the fifth thing is it's like an enemy whose power is broken. Satan was having a field day in our lives until Jesus stepped in, broke the power of Satan, broke the power of sin, broke the power of rebellion, and changed everything round once and for all. His work is finished. It's defeated. When, <laughs> when we hear that cry from the cross, it is finished. It's all about the work of Satan which is finished once and for all, the work of sin that's finished, all his enslavement, all his accusation, all his condemnation of you and me, his power over our future is destroyed. Amen? That's why we don't have to have any fear or anxiety about the future. His power over our future is destroyed once and for all by the power of the cross. Hallelujah. How do we receive this freedom? Because there's a problem we've got that we need to get out of and there's a work that Jesus has done that can lead us into freedom. So how do we receive it? Well, I want to suggest to you three basic things. I mean, there's lots of different formulas that are given Uh, And I don't want to give you a formula, but I do want to give you the heart of what's going on here. And there are three aspects to this. First of all, first of all, we need to humble ourselves. It needs to be a sense of humility. Where we say, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. It's not my DNA that leads me to behave like this. It's my jolly self will. At root, I want to do things my way and not God's way. We have to have the humility to say, actually, I have a deep problem here and I need saving. You're not supposed to agree with that. Lorraine will. Uh, Oh, yes. Listen, this is one of the most important things. You don't just need a sticking plaster on your life. You don't need just to be patted on the head and made to feel a bit, hey, you're all right. You're a good man, Steve. Oh, thank you very much. That's not what Steve needs. (coughs) Steve needs a fundamental root and branch change of all that human twisted sinful behavior inside of him how do I know takes one to know one this is our problem and we have to have the humility to say so now listen 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 very carefully I need saving you need saving from this twisted nature inside of you that wants to make it yourself go your own way not live like God said That's our pride speaking. Your kids need saving. Parents, you've been given a precious gift in your kids. Wonderful. You see them before you day after day and think, aren't they wonderful? But you see another side from time. Did you ever have to teach them to say, no, they do it all by themselves? Did you ever have to teach them to do exactly what you told them not to do? They do it all by themselves. 
I've seen it in my own kids. I see it now in my grandkids. We've got these beautiful twins. Our daughter Miriam has beautiful twins of 18 months and they're delightful. And yet we've seen such self-will in them already. Doing precisely what they're told not to do. Karis, don't put this in your mouth. No, take it out. Don't. She gets it again. Don't put it in your mouth. I'm talking just a couple of weeks ago. You know, what is that? It's called sin. Now, listen. It's this that Jesus came to deal with. It's your root problem. It's my root problem. It's our root problem. It's the root problem of the world. But Jesus came to break it. So we need some humility. Secondly, we need a sense of acceptance that we understand Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for us. By the way, the reason I just wanted to stick with parents, I do want to stick, I hope you pray for your kids. We pray for them this morning in the pre-meeting prayer time that they'd meet God, that they'd come to Christ. Parents, pray for your kids. You cannot bless them into the kingdom of God. At a certain point, they will need repentance a step of repentance to see they're proud and they're silly and only jesus can help them let me come and add in something i just remembered something i was intending to say in one of our french churches i'll talk about it there because it puts it at a distance there's a young married couple and they were learning how to live together and what that means and various challenges they each had in their personalities in being married that's one of the great delights of being married (laughs) that you discover the challenges that there are between you with your different personalities and and the husband was pretty frustrated because the wife was basically saying you know if only you do this, I'd be this. If only you do this, and I'd be this. And we both do this to one another. I'm, just, I'm not saying it's only one, one way, but we both do this to one another, don't we, sometimes? And, and he turned around in the end and said, now listen, darling, I am prepared to be your husband, and I will love you with all the commitment of my life, but you need Jesus to be your savior. Only he can save you from this stuff that's going on with you you'd better get into God and don't just moan at me. He was, I thought there was a lot of wisdom there, I have to say that, because <laughs> it sort of pushes the problem elsewhere. <laughs> but he was right. Every one of us needs a saviour. Our husband, our wife cannot save us. They can't help you. think, well, I'll just get married, that'll fix everything. No, that's when your other problems will begin. Because you're living with another imperfect human being like yourself and you both need Jesus to save you. Okay, so acceptance, we recognize that Christ has done everything for us. He's paid the legal price. He's brought us back in touch with the Father, etc. And the third thing is this, faith. We trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. He's done it all. He's done it all. Okay, I need to bring this into land pretty quickly now. And um, so, how do we live in this freedom? Well, the next three months are going to answer this question. 
So at least I don't have to get it all in in the last couple of minutes. And you've been very patient, and thank you, I've watched, and you've been very attentive. How do we live in this freedom? First of all, by claiming your legal right in the kingdom of God. Jesus has done certain things for you which are valid in your life and which can't be taken away. Maybe, no, no, please, thank you. Maybe you've had this experience over Christmas. Somebody gave you a present, wasn't quite what you wanted. And you think, I don't need one of those because I've got one of those or this isn't what I wanted. Uh, I wonder if I can take it back and get something else. You don't want to say to the people, where did you buy it from? And I don't like it. <laughs> and have you got a receipt? I mean, you, you want to shortcut all that. So you go to a shop that you know sells the thing. So I was given this as a present. Can I exchange it for something else? And of course, you get one of two answers, as you well know. One is, if you've got, have you got a receipt? No, sorry. Or, well, we'll give you something else to the same value it may be. Uh, but it's at sale price now. That's all you can get. <laughs> Have you had that one happen? Anyway. Isn't it wonderful sometimes to take something back to a shop which isn't what, quite what you want? They say, have you got a receipt? And you say, yes, I've got the receipt here. And you plonk it down on the counter. They look at it. They say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll exchange it. Because you've got the receipt. The cross is Jesus's receipt, your receipt, that Jesus has done everything he had to do to deal with your sin. Some days you don't feel like a Christian very much. The presence of God isn't beautifully warm, tingly and wonderful like it was last Sunday in the meeting because you're on your own in a rough, tough world. That's when you don't rely on your feelings. And Christians should never rely on their feelings. Never rely on their feelings. By that I mean feelings are good. And if God gives you feelings of warm, tingly blessing and all the rest, enjoy as long as it lasts. Because tomorrow it might be a bit more drafty. Right? But you can look to the cross and say, whatever Satan whispers in my ear, Jesus has done it all. That's my receipt. I am free from this. I'm going to walk as a son or a daughter of God. I'm going to live like a child of God. I'm not going to hear the accusation. I'm not going to hear the little voices that say, you're not a very good Christian, are you? The answer is, no, I'm not. But Jesus has paid the price for all my sin, past, present, and future. And I'm free. And we say... That's the receipt. We plonk it down. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. It's done. It's done. It's done. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) We claim our legal right. This is a legal thing. We look to the cross. Jesus has done it. If you want to read anybody on this, read Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a depressive by nature, and he had horrible battles to fight in the life of the church, and he didn't find it easy at all. But regularly, he looked to the cross and he claimed the power of the cross and all that Jesus had done for him, and it fired him up to keep going. By increasingly understanding the new life that Jesus brings to us, obviously, we need to understand that if Jesus said, I've set you free, he means I've set you free. 
There is a power that you can claim in your everyday life which the cross declares and the word of God declares and the Holy Spirit brings you that will set you free from the power of sin. You are not doomed to failure. You are destined to glory. Can I repeat that? And especially for those of us who are in cycles of failure over particular things. I never seem to get over this one. Whether it's doubt or fear or anxiety or worries about money. or I never seem to get over it. But there's power in the cross to get over it. Praise God. You may not be what you one day will be, but you're not what you were either. You're on a journey and you're going up and it's by the power of the cross and all that Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. And other speakers will talk much more about this over the next few weeks by inviting God's spirit to live within us. The realm of the Holy Spirit is so very, very important because... cross of Christ is our receipt. It's the thing that says deal done, paid for. But the Holy Spirit is the powerful presence of God inside of us that helps to tell us you're all right. You're a son of the kingdom. You're a daughter of the kingdom. You're one of Christ's children and you're empowered to live a life of freedom and I'm going to empower you. And that's why this dimension of the Holy Spirit is so important. Because we need the job done and the job being done in us by the Holy Spirit. Amen.